Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Cromwell, our chief of men, who through a cloud, not of war only, but detractions rude, guided by faith and matchless fortitude, to peace and truth thy glorious way has ploughed, and on the neck of crowned fortune proud, hast reared God's trophies. That was John Milton writing a sonnet in honour of Oliver Cromwell in 1652, three years after the execution of Charles I, and shortly before, to Milton's horror, Cromwell would become Lord Protector. Um, with me is uh, noted roundhead Dominic Sandbrook. Dominic, <laughs> Dominic, that, uh, that's a lovely you, introduction. Would you would you uh, agree with uh, with Milton in in um, in lauding Cromwell in that way? Are you a fan? I, I am a fan actually. I think you can probably divide people, can't you? Into um, there was that old line, you know, what 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 side would you have fought on at Marston Moor? And I think you can divide people into Cromwellians and non Cromwellians. I'm definitely a Cromwellian in my view, Tom. And this is a big statement. I would Cromwell is my favourite British political leader. Even better than Stanley Baldwin, in my mind, and Jim Callaghan. I think Cromwell is right up there, right at the top. I, I love Cromwell. I think he's so interesting, so interesting. F- favorite in, in in the sense that he's the most interesting British yeah, political but, figure, but, but or favorite actually, as in as in you admire as, his achievements. I think. Uh, do you know what? Both. I I uh, and I, I admire him for the fact he had he was in a position that no other Englishman has ever been in, other than Richard Cromwell, his son, being Lord Protector, having supreme power, and I think by and large. Um, you know, power reveals character. And I think it revealed him in a pretty good light, actually. I think, you know, it didn't corrupt particularly. He didn't behave especially badly. Now, I know Irish listeners are already, you know, right, throwing yeah. their phones across the, the room in fury. But by and large, I'm a big, big Cromwell fan. Okay, well, as you suggested, there are lots of people who would disagree with that verdict yeah. on Cromwell. I mean, he you know, he was the leader of one side in a civil war. So obviously, royalists by and large tend not to be keen on him. And you mentioned Ireland, and in Ireland, his his name is is basically mud. Um, so we need someone to guide us, I think, through the uh, the complexities and the ambivalences and the ambiguities, not just of of Cromwell's life, but um, of the period that we're particularly focusing on in this episode, which is, I guess you'd call it the British Republic, the period from Charles I's execution up to the restoration of his son, Charles II. And there is no better person to uh, to provide us with that guidance than Paul Lay, who is editor of History Today, um, but also, more saliently for our purposes, author of a, a fabulous book, uh, Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate, absolutely garlanded with praise. Um, so, Paul, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. And can you help us out, Cromwell, hero or zero? Well, neither, of course. Um, I agree with Dominic to a certain extent that he's the most fascinating character. But he's also, and I think this is what makes him even more fascinating for me, is that he's incredibly elusive. And I think this is why the man lends himself to mythology. There's always an awful lot to fill in with Cromwell. I mean, this is a man who's almost nothing for the first two thirds of his life. He barely exists in the records. And then suddenly, at the age of 43, he becomes, or he sets out on a career as one of the great cavalry commanders in British history. And we can discuss where he ranks there. Um, But then he becomes this 
as Dominic says, this almost unique figure. And I think he is unique because Richard is not remotely comparable, really, apart from the position he holds for a brief while. He is this unique head of state who tries to create something that I think is born of a kind of moral and theological endeavour. And in some sense, the legacy is a continuous one. The monarchy never returns, even after the Restoration, in the sense that it was before that. There's never a kind of Charles' personal rule or anything like that. Parliament becomes in the ascendant over that time. There are still things to be worked out. Essentially, he does define us. And I think the battle that he waged, the ideas that he waged, are still resonant now. And I think in particular um, of T.S. Eliot's poem, uh, Little Gidding in the Four Quartets, when he talks about the fire and the rose that compete within the nation and compete within ourselves often, I think, like the Gilbert and Sullivan line that every boy and girl alive is a little bit liberal or a little bit conservative. And those are the battles that we see in Cromwell to a certain extent, but in the nation that Cromwell was so important in forging. But Paul, isn't the interesting thing that he's not a little liberal or a little conservative, that either side can claim him, and that's what's so fascinating about him, that he contains all, in a way, he contains all English politics, don't you think? Yes, I think he does, because um, I think there's a lot of people on the left who regard him as heroic because they see him as a Republican uh, for that alone, and then there are, of course, people on the right who see him as important because he's an English nationalist, he has this... A profound idea of English exceptionalism. Uh, he is a defender of religious liberty too, I think. I mean, Catholics obviously would, would counter that. But um, in terms of his commitment to a really quite capacious uh, religious settlement, certainly by the standards of the mid-17th century, he's a pretty remarkable uh, figure. And he also has this central role as one of the creators of the British army too, though I think it's probably sometimes forgotten. And the fleet, didn't he? Um, yes, well, that's He had important. a battleship called the Marston Moor, which I always thought <laughs> very cool, which I learned from your book. Yes, How many battleships don't... named after moors, are there? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, talking about Marston Moor, it, it suddenly strikes me that perhaps for, for people who aren't entirely on top of all their various civil war battles and so on, um, perhaps we should just set key things up before we get on to, on to Cromwell himself and the Protectorate and everything. Uh, Dominic, you're very good at that. Why don't you just, just quickly give a very quick breakdown of... of Sum up the Civil War in 30 seconds. Go <laughs> Thank on. you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Well, I did manage to sum up Game of Thrones last week without Twitter going wild. So, well, the English Civil War is a tough one. And is it the English Civil War? Well, that's a whole different question. Okay, well, Paul, you have to forgive me for this. Um, so basically, you're in 17th century England or 17th century Britain. Charles I has been ruling on his own without Parliament. He slightly sort of seems to fancy himself as an absolute monarch. Um, but at the end of the 1630s, everything kind of goes wrong at once. So there's a big rebellion in Ireland where you know, there's been sort of discontent simmering and there's sort of Catholic um, uh, resentment, uh, sort of English Protestantism and stuff. Um, at the same time, there is a rebellion or, or a war breaks out with the Scots over a prayer book that Charles is trying to impose. So, so two of these three kingdoms are, as it were, in revolt. Charles, it, the war goes very bad against the Scots. Charles needs more money. And the only way he can get more money is by recalling Parliament. But Parliament doesn't like him. They're at loggerheads. He raises his standard and says, you know, rally to me against Parliament. And civil war breaks out between King and Parliament. So between cavaliers and roundheads for people who are familiar with those terms. So you've got this sort of multifaceted civil war. 
to cut a very long story short, the first civil war goes very badly for Charles. He loses. But at that point, the parliamentarians don't want to kill him and they don't want to sort of kick him out or anything. They believe in the monarchy. They just want a better deal with Charles. So they're talking to Charles. They've got him kind of locked up and they're trying to get a deal with him and they think they're going to get a deal. But Charles goes behind their back. He does a secret deal with the Scots. So one of his three kingdoms, but the sort of his old enemy, as it were, the Scots pile in against the parliamentarians and there's now a second civil war. So this incredibly complicated story has taken this Game of Thrones style twist. Well, the second civil war, but the parliament wins that as well, thanks to its new model army, of which the sort of leading light is Oliver Cromwell. So now they've won two civil wars. They've decided that they can't do any sort of deal with Charles because he's proved himself utterly untrustworthy. He is, as they call him, the man of blood, the traitor to his country, sort of agent of the Antichrist who has betrayed his people. So he's got to go. So they decide to cut his head off. They have a tri show trial. Off it goes his head. And then that raises the question, well, what on earth are we going to do next? And that's the point at which this great new model army cavalry general and former parliamentarian sort of um, firebrand, Oliver Cromwell, fully enters the stage. And is this also the point where we can go back to Paul Dominic? I think Paul should now do all the rest of the talking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was, that was slightly longer than expected, but very, very good. Okay. So Paul, you just, just give us the brief sketch of what happens when uh, Cromwell and the negotiations with Cromwell and others like him with Charles fails. Charles goes to the block, his head's chopped off. What then happens? Just a very brief sketch of the decade or so that follows. Well, without um, trying to draw too many parallels, the trial and execution of Charles I is a relatively small group of people making a very, very bold decision, but not knowing what to do next. And so there's an urgency immediately to settle the country. That's not particularly different. That's not particularly difficult. England, after civil war, like all countries after civil war, seeks peace and wants some kind of stability. Remember, this is the age of Hobbes, and even Hobbes, the former mathematics tutor to the young exiled Charles II, for example, is one who finds his peace with the regime. With the regime. So there's a lot of people who want to reach a settlement. But there's also a great deal of opposition. Uh, there's some in Scotland, although on the whole, uh, the English Parliament is reasonably well disposed to their fellow uh, Calvinists on the whole. But then there is the issue of Ireland, uh, which is the first um, great act, the conquest of Ireland, that takes place um, with this Commonwealth that's been announced. Here is the bit where we are in a kind of English Republic, a Commonwealth, the House of Lords has been abandoned, Parliament is in the ascendant, uh, the monarchy is gone. This is the closest we get to that. But within that, Cromwell is a primus inter pares, someone who merely has a substantial um, military and political role because of his deeds in the past, whether that's at um, events like Naseby uh, and, and in the, the Scottish campaign. Um, and so he has this reputation, but as yet, he's not a political figure beyond his role in the trial and execution. So there's still a lot to decide at this point. All kinds of possibilities are possible. And Paul, can I um, jump in and, and take us back a tiny bit? So Cromwell at that point, he'd been an MP before the war. He'd been a cav fantastic cavalry commander during the war. But what kind of a man, I mean, I mean, if you'd met him, 
what kind of a man was he? I mean, obviously he was born again, wasn't he? He's a sort of born again Christian, but yeah. he's also earthy and and disputatious and often quite angry. And I mean, I mean, if you know, if I, you walked into a room and there he is, what's he what's he like as a man? Well, I don't think he's a natural, or at least what we think of as a natural 17th century Puritan. Uh, this is a man who drinks. This is a man who smokes. This is a man who uh, enjoys music. He seems to have, he's no intellectual. But On that note, great question from Spike Searle, who says, in what way did Cromwell's early cricketing career influence his later <laughs> religious beliefs? I think that's very important. To, uh, the, uh, <laughs> to also, yeah, he was very keen on cricket and he played football, apparently, according to when he was a young man. But then, of course, he's notorious for, for banning cricket on, uh, on the Sabbath day. And that uh, kind of sums up the... Uh, the tension, doesn't it? Um, bowler, batsman, or rounder? <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> no, no. Do you know I, don't think, I don't think it goes into that. Did he represent <laughs> the minor counties up between given his birthplace? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, he, he well, he's an Ironside, I guess. So probably well, a batsman. Well, it um, makes clear why he'd wish to go to the West Indies, I suppose, and uh, gain possessions there. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he, maybe cricket was introduced at that point. The first maybe Caribbean tour. <laughs> I think we're getting distracted. Here. Anyway, <laughs> the point I wanted to make was that um, he's perfectly capable, say, of liking cricket or, yeah, or liking fun. music or painting or whatever. But at the same time, he, he, he's clearly religion is everything to him. Yes, How do we square is. that that kind of that paradox? That's square that circle. Because I, I suspect that in the end, and I think this is something that, that Dominic alluded to, this idea of a sea green incorruptible in many ways, I think is true to a certain extent. What God decides is what will happen anyway. I mean, he is uh, perfectly attuned to the idea of predestination, that it's all being worked out anyway. He's simply looking to see if he's on the right side and doing God's will. And within that, there's a fair amount of space for a certain kind of Calvinist. If one is saved, one is saved anyway. And I don't think he's the kind of malicious Puritan in terms of pleasure. I mean, there are great stories about him being at his daughter's wedding where he's drunk and he's dancing and he's joking. There are, you know, the, the famous account, whether it's true or not, about him flicking ink at the time that the register was signed. Um, you know, you have to take these things with a bit of a pinch of salt. Again, we've got this mythology, the elusiveness of Cromwell, that openness of the record. But from all accounts, this is not the man who fits in with the very, very austere Puritanism that is associated with this time in figures such as Praise God Bearburn, or even Milton, who I think was perhaps a more uh, formidable uh, Puritan in, the, in, the, in that kind of moral and behavioural sense. Before we get back to the, the seriousness of the politics, I have to ask before Tom does, is it true that he was kidnapped by a monkey? <laughs> small and is it also true that as a boy I, i'm certain this is false but i'm sure i read it in the ladybird book that he had a fight with the the, the future charles the first that's you did true, they were yes, both you, in the ladybird book they were yeah. in the ladybird book i remember it very well um that, that's the book where only the um irish take against him i believe um, yes. but um i have seen no evidence and i don't think anyone has ever ever has done but i, I wonder where that story comes from well our mutual, our, our mutual friend ted valance wrote about it yeah, and he, yeah. he he traced it back, I think, to an early nineteenth century source. Yeah, no, that's what you'd imagine. Yeah, yeah let's go back to the, we got outside track from the politics. Sorry, Paul, that's I took right. you off with my, <laughs> my my monkey my monkey talk. I took you off from the politics of the protectorate. So let's go back to where we were. 
there's this sort of grey area, isn't there? Charles has had a head cut off. They kind of is who's going to run Britain? The 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 army, the the parliament, or whatever. And at that point, Cromwell's just a soldier, basically. Is he? He's not really a political figure. Is that right? Well, he's a political figure in the sense that he's played a very prominent role in the trial and execution of Charles. I mean, I, th- I think you see a big shift between attitudes of certain parliamentarians, particularly Cromwell, after, um, ju- rather during the Second Civil War. Because I think by that time, this idea of Charles as a man of blood emerges. And even people like Cromwell, who are partial to the idea of monarchy, are not at all ideological Republicans, are sick to the back teeth of this man's duplicities. And they see the only way out of this is through trial and then ultimately execution of this man of blood. But as I said, they've absolutely no idea what to do next. They they have to deal with, for security reasons alone, with Scotland and Ireland. But then once Ireland is conquered, um, to the extent that Cromwell's involved in it in 1650, they then have to reach for a settlement. And there is a kind of deal that's reached with the Rump Parliament that it will make itself redundant, essentially. But that doesn't really happen. And I think that's the point when Cromwell really emerges as the dominant figure and Parliament is just thrown out. It's reduced. It's denuded. And suddenly some kind of new settlement is needed. And there are various experiments with this. But the first one of those parliamentary experiments is the one I think that reveals just how much the figures around Cromwell and the people who were then in the ascendant in the state were really religious fundamentalists, of which Cromwell was by no means the extreme. And what I'm talking about there is the nominated assembly, which is also known as Barebones Parliament, uh, after um, a Puritan leather trader called Praise God Barebones. Um, and what this is modelled on, and this is the brainchild of Thomas Harrison, who's fought alongside Cromwell, a general, um, who is the leader of a group called the Fifth Monarchists. Um, bizarre beliefs um, who, to cut a long story short, see England as being the inheritor of the great empires of the past, and that if they fulfil um, their political and theological plans in England, Christ will return as this fifth monarch, and that will be the end of it all. So, I mean, you get a real sense of the kind of bizarre beliefs that you have here um, that are pretty extreme even by the time, and certainly are not ones adhered to by the English public at this point. And um, you have, it's called the nominated assembly because it's supposed to um, uh, be filled with 140 people who have the root of the matter in them. Uh, good, sound, Puritan figures. Um, they're supposed to be nominated by the individual churches, the independent churches. They're actually not. Most of them are um, uh, decided by the Council of State, which, along with Cromwell, is basically running things at this point. Um, and it's by no means as m- mad in terms of the practices, as you might think from the way it's modelled on the Old Testament Sanhedrin. It puts through quite a few reforms of the law that are much needed. There's always quite a few lawyers around the parliamentary side, but it rubs up against the army. And here is the rub, because everything in the end that takes place 
during this decade is ultimately dependent upon the power of the army. If the army doesn't want it, it doesn't really happen. And Cromwell is the significant figure because he's the person who has the kind of trust or enough trust on both sides for them to invest in with the prominence he has at this point. However, the nominated assembly does fail because it doesn't give enough money to the army. And this is a common theme throughout this period. And so another figure emerges instead of Thomas Harrison, rather it disappears to the margins here. And the person who emerges is the figure who's very much seen at this point, and we're talking about 1653-54 here, who is John Lambert, um, who has had a military career almost as spectacular as Cromwell's, who spends most of the time while the nominated assembly is bickering, coming up with the world's first written constitution, which is the instrument of government. And what that does, among many other things, is reconfigure the trinity of king, lords and commons into a new trinity, holy or not, of protector, which is the position that will be offered to Cromwell, knowing that he's unlikely to take the crown. And you have, instead of lords, a council of state with people like Lambert around him, the great and good of the regime. And then you have Parliament, which is pretty denuded by this point. So that's the settlement to which Cromwell agrees. And that is when the protectorate begins. And is it fair to talk of Cromwell there as a dictator? Is that too strong? I know people did talk at the turn of the 20th century, looking abroad, they thought, oh, Cromwell was a sort of prototype for modern dictators. But do you think that's wrong? Or do you think he is a military strong man in a sort of recognisably modern mould? No, I don't think he is. I mean, it, you're absolutely right. It was it was a common analogy with the uh, dictator of the 1930s. And in fact, it was it was one made by, among other people, C.V. Wedgwood, um, who was a great historian of this period, who recanted very publicly at a meeting of the Cromwell Association um, oh, many decades good. later um, and said she was completely wrong. It's very difficult to argue. One, because whatever is false, Cromwell does continuously seek a settlement and constantly refers to the idea of healing and settling, which I think is sincere. The way he goes about it is not always sincere. Hence, Blair Worden's wonderful phrase about um, Cromwell being practised of not knowing. So there's, there's definitely this slippery side to him that can be absent when things happen, despite his hand, his, his fingerprints being all over them. Um, but military dictator, even if the desire is there, and I don't think it is, there is not the means of anything like a military dictatorship in a 17th century European state. I mean, it just isn't there. The communications isn't there, the technologies there, the kind of surveillance that you need. It's just not possible. So, Paul, basically, the protectorate is a kind of protracted exercise in trying to work out a framework that will enable England and indeed Britain. I mean, because it's, it's, it's for the, the whole of Great Britain, isn't it, for the first yeah. time um, to function, but also to put down solid foundations. And in the long run, that that is what dooms the British Republic is that the foundations are are inadequate, basically to cope with Cromwell's death. And so after Cromwell's death, we've got a question here from uh, um, Matthew Butcher. Was the restoration inevitable or is there a realistic path which keeps England as a republic? Well, it wasn't a republic. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. When, when Cromwell's there, it's not a republic. It's a protectorate. It's a quasi-monarchy. It's something akin 
maybe to a kind of Venetian settlement and people like uh, James Harrington, who wrote Oceana as an advice book to Cromwell, um, were obsessed by classical republicanism and Venetian republicanism, as was uh, Milton and this idea of an elected doge, an elected protector, which was always an option. But I'm afraid that the entire population was never really convinced of an alternative to a monarchy. Um, the old bottom, the ancient constitution, is constantly referred to by people in Parliament when they when they refer to the Norman yoke, for example, and the ancient constitution. But to most people's minds, even many of those in Parliament, the ancient constitution is the monarchy and the Commons and the, um, the House of Lords. That's the way it works, and we simply have this interregnum where an alternative. Um, is attempted, but I think there's, and I think this is interesting about Cromwell here, is that as a military figure, he's incredibly decisive. When you read the records of his actions at Naseby, for example, this is a decisive figure when you look at him in his battles. But I think as a political figure, he's never really sure what the settlement should be. And he's offered various settlements, uh, particularly by people who emerge towards the end uh, of the protector, or at least towards the end of his life, who are very concerned to find the settlement. They know that this is a man in his late 50s. He's racked by various illnesses. He's had a tough military life as well as the stresses of this new kind of government. And he's not going to be around forever and probably not much longer. And so a settlement has to be found. And I think there are basically four alternatives that are presented to him. The first is that he just accepts kingship. He becomes Oliver I, and that becomes an hereditary position. So the House of Cromwell. So the House of Cromwell. Right. But there's also the one where he accepts kingship, Oliver I, but that is not hereditary. It's an elective kingship, rather like Venice. The same for the protector. You could take on this title of protector and continue it and make that hereditary or again elective. And the truth is that at the end, when he's on his deathbed during that great storm on the 3rd of September 1658 and says the settlement is that it will be the position of Lord Protector will be passed on to Richard. So essentially the choice is a Lord Protector of an hereditary nature. But that's the position that we are. And so by the time Cromwell dies, the settlement, the succession has not been decided on. In many ways, that's quite reminiscent of what happened with Cromwell's own hero, Elizabeth I, when you have a great deal of uncertainty as to how you settle succession. And so Richard briefly serves as Lord Protector. He's he's not really on for it. Um, there's kind of general meltdown and people basically decide, well, if we're going to have a monarchical system, we might as well get the original Stuart family back and Charles II returns. So we've we've had a, a very um, nifty gallop through the, the history of the um, of of the protectorate and, and, and building up to that. So I think it's I think worth should... saying, sorry, that um, in terms of Richard, it's, it's, it's not a question of whether Richard's up for it or not. I mean, I, I don't get the sense that he is, although he's incredibly long lived. So that would have been good. He, he lives well into the uh, 18th century. But I think the fundamental goes back to what I said earlier. He hasn't got the support of the army. Right. OK. That's the point. OK. OK. So and, and on the theme of, of the role that the army plays, that's something perhaps that we could come back to. We should come back to look at um, Cromwell's relationship with with the, the radicals, the levellers, which is also kind of key theme. And we must come and look at, at his role in Ireland as well. But I think for now, we should quickly go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we'll look at Cromwellian controversies. 
Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are debating the good old cause of the 17th century, the life and times of Oliver Cromwell, the fortunes of the British Republic, with me, top roundhead Dominic Sandbrook, uh, foppish cavalier Tom Holland, and actual <laughs> Cromwellian expert who knows what he's talking about, Paul Lay. So, Paul, uh, can I kick off with a question? We were just talking about the course of the protectorate and, and the sort of the whole story of the 1650s before the break. So when people like sort of Tony Benn, Labour politician, or sort of generally sort of left-wing people say this was a missed opportunity for republicanism, are they basically wrong? I mean, from your last stuff, it sounded like you thought there was never really a possibility of a genuinely sort of vaguely democratic republic. It was always going to be a monarchical solution one way or the other. Well, I don't think it's inevitable. Um, the, the people like Tony Benn, many historians, or very, very good historians, identify with the levellers. Indeed, in my paperback version of the book, there is a picture of me in Burford Graveyard. Um, oh, yeah, I know it well, with, Burford Graveyard. With, with the three um, troopers there. And Dominic, just to interrupt, another of your quick resumes, what, what, who are the levellers? Oh, golly. Okay, so the levellers, they are uh, mem- soldiers in the New Model Army, um, they've been basically told they've got to go to Ireland. They don't want to go, but also they're kind of on the, as it were, the left wing of that movement. They are much more democratic. They, um, they want to sort of, uh, they want to be, get a vote. They want a more, what we would recognize as a more sort of democratic Republican settlement. Cromwell is Blair and the level is the Corbynites. I, I mean, let's go that far. These, these analogies are very, very difficult. Um, um, the levelers believing something like they are building a new Jerusalem. And that's the kind of language that has been a part of an English radical tradition ever since, if not before. Um, and Tony Benn would appeal to that. And it's a real tradition. And Cromwell, Cromwell to, to people like Ben uh, is a, a, a kind of a, a problematic figure, right? Because he's a, he's a villain to Ben. Tony well, Ben yeah. said that Dennis Healy was the Cromwell of the 1970s. Yes, well, and in many ways, I'd words, say... Indeed. Like, <laughs> I'd say Dennis Healy is the far more attractive figure, but um, certainly the more cultivated figure and certainly actually the more effective political figure. But that we, we can we can debate that at some other time. And, and in 1650, so a year after Charles I's death, Cromwell is getting ready to cross to Ireland and the army is camped at Burford. And there is a, essentially there's a kind of mutiny, isn't there? It is a mutiny, isn't it? They're it's, in the yeah. church, aren't they? They're all yeah. in the church. Yeah. And, and what does Cromwell do? Well, he takes three of them out and he shoots them against right. the wall of Burford Church. And, uh, and yes, and there's a kind of memorial to them, isn't there? There is, yes. And it's an interesting memorial because we talk about Cromwell being all things to all men uh, because it's not just Tony Benn who finds uh, uh, Burford this place of pilgrimage. It's also a place where conservative Brexiteers such as Daniel Hannan um, eulogise um, as this birthplace of the free-born English man, which of course is the phrase we associate with the most famous of all the levelers, Milton. So it's funny that we say that because I don't necessarily see this idea of free-born Englishman being a kind of right or left-wing thing. It can appeal to both sides. Again, we're back to that theme of the fire and the rose. Right. So, and so at Burford, um, essentially the, the mutiny gets put down. And one of the things that the levelers are objecting to is the very idea of crossing to Ireland. Um, so there's, there's a, a level of leaflet is distributed to the New Model Army on, on the eve of, of the crossing to Ireland. And it says, whether Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, William, Duke of Normandy, or any other, the great conquerors of the world were any other than so many great and lawless thieves, which is a kind of very, I mean, that really is a radical idea, isn't it? Yes. That, <laughs> that 
the, the whole, you know, the very the, the foundational idea for the crossing to, 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 to Ireland is presumably for, for Cromwell that God wants him to do it. That the, the Irish rebels are. No, you're. you're, you're... I, there is that. Um, people always ask me what it's comparable to. There are, there are certain um, parallels of the conquest of Ireland that does take place under Cromwell and preceded Cromwell and happened long after Cromwell. And comparisons have been drawn by some historians, British historians, um, comparing it to Nazi atrocities or what happened on the Eastern Front um, during the Second World War, these kind of comparisons there of genocide. Um, What I think it's most like, most comparable to, as a historic event, and I think this is what the levellers recognised and the critics of it recognised, is the Norman conquest. The levellers and people around them talk about the Norman yoke. They talk about the ancient constitution. That bit I just quoted has, has, has William, mentions William. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what the illusion is too. Absolutely. And what happens, what turns out, is wholly akin to the Norman conquest, whereby, and this is attempted in Scotland as well, but far, far more perniciously and aggressively in Ireland is the Anglicisation of these islands, of the islands of Britain and Ireland, but to make them entirely English. And the ideology behind that, I suspect, is that, and this goes back to people like Harrison, but I think it's something that Cromwell believes too and those around him, is that the English are an elect nation, just as... Uh, Israel was the elect nation of the Old Testament. England is the elect nation of the new. So, so Cromwell is like Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised yes. land. I mean, it's kind of that, that that's what we're talking about. And okay, he simply so, refers to such allusions. So we ha- we've had a host of questions, as you can imagine, about Cromwell, his role in Ireland. So we've got Seamus MacArthur. As a Northern Irishman, we often hear of Cromwell's brutality against the Irish. How much of this is true? How much is exaggerated? What was the source of this animosity? Was it a straightforward religious strife against Catholic Irish? We've got um, Luke Hennessy with no shortage of other available candidates. Why has a very special place in Irish hell been reserved for Cromwell for so long if the atrocities were exaggerated? OK, I mean, so were the, were the atrocities exaggerated? Um, if there were atrocities, what was Cromwell's role in it? Um, is the, uh, the the black tones in which... Um, Ireland tends to paint Cromwell justified. Um, if not, why is he such a, a seen as such a kind of a, a diabolic figure? This is quite a question. Um, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no pressure. Um, <laughs> but, um, what I tend to think about this is that um, I don't know whether you've been to Cromwell's house in Ely, in which he spent, in the 800 years that the house has been built, he spent 20 years connected to it, not even living there, but it is Cromwell's house. And I think there's a kind of analogy there with Cromwell in Ireland. Cromwell spent about nine months in Ireland. His actions were decisive, sometimes I would argue barbaric, particularly in his treatment of Catholic priests in cold blood. But the facts have often been mythologised, as Cromwell has been. And I don't think that there was one question from uh, one person on Twitter I noticed who said, why is Cromwell celebrated in England, but not in um, Ireland? And I thought, he's not celebrating England. He's almost as controversial character 
in England as he is in Ireland. I mean, this is a person that still opens up sores. I mean, we'll talk about the, the statue, but there's much more than that. He's a deeply divisive character. And I've been reminded of it just in the response to this book. But if we look at what happened in Ireland, it's, I think, the key to the ruthlessness that Cromwell uh, displays is something to do with this ruthlessness of the army that takes place after the Second Civil War, when they're avenging blood, as they see it. And the avenging blood in Ireland is the Ulster Rebellion, uh, is the Irish Rebellion of 1641, which is exaggerated hugely at the time, but is real. And it takes on the kind of propaganda in England. And I think the rebellion tells or signals to Protestants in England, the people who will fight Charles in the Civil War, that the people over there are beyond the pale. Sorry for the allusion there, but literally beyond the pale. And therefore, it is time to settle Ireland once and for all. So, Paul, yep. by, by, by the standards of war as practised on the continent, is, is Cromwell's behaviour regarded as excessive even by that? Or is he behaving according to the accepted conventions of war? People behave pretty badly in the Thirty Years' War, yeah. though, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Which I is mean, exactly his defenders always say, well, yeah. you know, he was he was behaving according to the conventional standards. I mean, was he? Well, let's have a look at... I mean, the, the only way you can really begin to answer this um, is looking at um, what happens. Um, James Butler, who's the Earl of Ormond, has brilliantly put together an Irish and Royalist coalition in Ireland the aim being to secure Ireland as a base to attack England um, and to bring royalism back. That's that's the kind of simple equation that he's dealing with. And by about, uh, he, he's got a strategy together by March 1649. So this is only two months after the king's been executed, if that. Uh, he's got a campaign strategy together and appears to have the significant numbers to be able to take Dublin. And in fact, by the end of June, He's about two miles from Dublin. Now, the decisive turning point here, I think, is that the defeat by Michael Jones at Rathmines of this royalist Irish force, that seems to me to be the decisive victory in this whole campaign. That's the 2nd of August, because it allows, it stalls Ormond's campaign for one, but it allows the new model army, 12,000 battle-hardened, theologically and ideologically primed and experienced British soldiers into um, Dublin. Plus, they have £100,000 in cash that's given them by Parliament. So this is a serious force. But it's also a force that goes into Ireland uh, with Cromwell's firm instructions that any soldiers caught looting will be hanged. It goes in with a kind of core of discipline. And Drogheda is the place that's always mentioned. This is a significant town being fought over again and again by both sides. Um, The gateway uh, to Ulster. And Ormond appoints Arthur Aston as the governor of this place. And when Cromwell emerges with his army to besiege it, he's offered the means to surrender. Now, this is the normal process uh, at this time. It's seen endlessly in the Thirty Years' War. It's quite common elsewhere. If you offer 
uh, the defenders, the opportunity to surrender, they will be let go. Aston does not surrender, and he's two and a half thousand men or whatever it is, they're defending this. And in the end, uh, it falls to um, Cromwell's troops. Now, there are real atrocities there. The burning of St. Peter's Church is particularly important. There are people burned alive there. Um, and the sanctioned execution of Catholic priests, which is sanctioned, I believe all the evidence pointed by Cromwell, is plainly uh, a war crime, unacceptable. There's no evidence that there was a real slaughter of civilians, although, of course, in, a, in such an event, um, civilians may well be caught up in this, and there's no solid evidence of a, of, of a massacre of, of civilians. That's where we are. Um, but there is also... Uh, an element of ethnic cleansing there, because the, the statement is said, you know, once this place is cleared and everyone's left, honest people should come here, i.e. not the Catholic Irish, but it should be left to settlers, Protestants, English settlers. So we see soldiers killed there. That's, you know, whatever we think of it now, that's part of the deal of war, uh, siege warfare it was done then. Um, but priests and friars being executed in cold blood, absolutely not. And it was perceived as such, even then. He then goes south because, as Drogheda was the gateway to um, Ulster, um, Wexford um, is the kind of gateway to Leinster, Munster. He arrives there in October, um, the port's still open. And in fact, it's, it starts badly because his forces come out in marshland, a lot of people get dysentery. Um, and David Sinnott, who is the kind of Wexford governor, he again is asked to surrender. And in fact, many of the townspeople, civilians actually leave. An English bombardment begins about 10 days later. And Sinnott actually asks for uh, a parley uh, to discuss terms. And he's got his own little agenda there. But the commander of the castle, works with James Stafford, as far as I'm, I'm aware, surrenders and English troops enter. And there is some resistance in the town centre of Marcus Square. And in fact, this is where Cromwell loses control of his troops. Again, we see something like 2,000 dead. I mean, these estimates are, are still being looked at all the time. Priest, again, no justification whatsoever. But just about nine days later, I think it's 19th, 20th of October, uh, in New Ross, which is another important settlement, Lucas Taff, who's the governor commander there, surrenders on pretty generous terms. And the garrison is actually allowed um, to depart with its individual weapons, not the cannon, artillery, that kind of stuff, but it can take its own muskets, whatever, whatever it has. Um, and so you see a real difference there. Now, you can talk all day, is, is Cromwell doing this to encourage others not to... Has it worked, in other words, the violence at Drogheda and Wexford? Has it worked at New Ross? Has this message been sent out that this happens, uh, that this is the fate that will happen... Who knows? What I would recommend, and I think there is still a great deal of work going on to this entire campaign and the settlement too, is there's a very good new book edited by, among others, Martin Bennett called um, Cromwell, An Island, New Perspectives, which is just about as up to date as the scholarship goes with both British and Irish historians. Patrick Lenehan in particular has done very valuable work looking at the numbers there because the numbers are always contested. And, um, and so... You know, that's important, but the point okay, but about... So, and so, so, so what is the conclusion? I mean, basically, the question is, is there something excessive that Cromwell is doing, both by the standards of the age and by the standards of other English campaigns over the course of Irish history? 
that explains yes. why he has this demonic status in Ireland? Or is there, uh, is there something extraneous to that that explains Cromwell's posthumous reputation? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, Cromwell is part of a process, a significant part of a process. But if you look at the 1580s, if you look at the Nine Years' War from 1593 to 1603, during the Elizabethan settlement and the Jacob- Jacobean settlements, they are... Brutal, aren't they? Yeah, they're far bloody. Awful. They? they are far, far worse than this. And also, even if the Cromwellian settlement is worse, it's not necessarily Cromwell's work. Cromwell is only there for a relatively brief time. So, you know, by all means, pinpoint blame him there. I mean, we can see that with... The treatment of the priests and the friars absolutely appalling. You can see that kind of action in uh, in, in St. Peter's steeple um, in Drogheda. You, you can see all of that. But he's part of a continuum. And I think rather as he is in England, this kind of bogeyman, yeah. this is what happens if stability is there. Well, he's become a cipher for all the other things. And it's why I use the analogy of the house. He's in the house 20 years, but this house has an 800-year history. And he's there in um, Ireland for a brief period of time, although obviously he also instructs the way uh, Ireland is settled there too. But we're talking about an 800-year history here. Um, we might as well just blame Elizabeth I. You know, well, this is a good chance to, to take the story forward a bit and to talk about Cromwell's memory, because obviously in the 19th century, Cromwell becomes this incredibly controversial and interesting figure. The Victorians take him up and there's the... I mean, Stephen Clark, who's a friend of the show, history teacher himself, he's asked questions about Hamilton Thorncroft's uh, 1899 statue of Cromwell. Now, of course, there was a huge controversy about whether there should be a statue of Cromwell at the Houses of Parliament. I think Lord Rosebery, the Liberal Prime Minister, ended up paying for it. The Tories were dead against. The Irish were dead against, which shows what a what a reputation Cromwell had at the end of the 19th century. And even now, it's a it's a little bit controversial. Um, uh, so, do you think, to some extent, Cromwell is this Victor? You know, our Cromwell that we have a sense of is a kind of Victorian invention, because of course the Victorians remade him in their own image and used him as a sort of I don't know, as a template for their own political controversies, didn't they? Well, I suppose it all starts with Carlyle, really, and the idea of this kind of you know, great man, this significant figure. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. He, he's embraced by liberals, but it's the liberal party. I mean, I don't mind liberals in the way that we, we, we use it now. I'm talking about 19th century liberals like Lord Rosebery, who did indeed pay for the statue. And it was deeply controversial at the time. This is the time of you know, debates about home rule. You know, Ireland is absolutely to the fore of British politics at this time. And so this is deeply controversial. But you see, I mean, going back to the left here, you see the embrace of this figure Cromwell by people like Isaac Foote. Um, uh, Michael Foote's uh, grandfather, uh, part of this liberal dissenting tradition of which Cromwell is seen as the founding father of. Um, But it's a deeply secularised Cromwell that you have here. I think people like Isaac Foote, they really looked at what they were dealing with, would have been absolutely horrified by the kind of ideals that Cromwell had. But it's 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 maybe that I mean it's the measure of 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 just how controversial and significant a figure Cromwell is that I I mean I thought was, I'm sure you were struck in the same way that over the Brexit course of the Brexit debate suddenly Cromwell's name was everywhere again and it, it was being invoked by people who were siding with the primacy of Parliament and in all kinds of ways and endlessly being mentioned in in um, Irish commentary on Brexit as well yeah. and it's as though. Ooh. But also people used him, Tom, to say, they said, you know, that kind of when he goes into Parliament and says, in the name of God, go and all that. Yes. Brexiteers were saying that about 
Parliament yes. under Theresa May, weren't they? And it's kind of like whenever um, maybe British democracy comes under strain, Cromwell, the memory of Cromwell bubbles up. Whenever relations between Britain and particularly England and Ireland come under strain again, he is remembered. And perhaps, you know, that's that's his fate to be a... Yes, I think it is his fate. I mean, that that's what he symbolises, is this break between Ireland and Britain. I mean, that's one of the things he signifies. But everything about him is surrounded by myth, obfuscation and often error. I mean, Dominic's just mentioned, you know, probably the most famous words he ever mentioned in the name of God go. He never actually said them. I mean, <laughs> you know, what? I mean, according to John Morrill's new collection, um, they seem to derive from a forged version of Cromwell's speeches that's that's 1767 or something. Paul, I mean, next you'll be saying he never said warts and all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there is so much uh, about which we believe we know about Cromwell, but which we don't know. And this comes back to, you know, there's, there's a terrible ignorance about Cromwell, for better or worse, on both sides of the Irish Sea. I mean, we all know Chesterton's old... Um, uh, phrase about the difference between British and Irish history. You know, the Irish can never forget it and the English can never remember it when we're talking about Irish history. But I think this is this absolutely crucial point in British, British and Irish, European, indeed even global history, is one that's still pretty much a blank slate so far as the vast majority of British people go, perhaps even Irish people. And it is something that I think really needs to be amended if we're to understand who we are. Paul, you often don't like modern parallels, and yet I read in your book an excellent modern parallel, which I heartily approve of, where at the end of your great book, you say uh, you draw a parallel between Cromwell and Margaret Thatcher, both East Anglians, nonconformists, you know, very decisive when they needed to be, very divisive. Yeah, um, thought of as as austere, but but actually incredibly fun loving. Um, uh, do you think that? So, talk to us about the Margaret Thatcher analogy because I think that's one that most listeners will find extraordinary. Well, I was being quite mischievous when I did it. Obviously, I, it is absolutely true that I don't like to draw uh, modern parallels too closely, but I couldn't I couldn't miss the, the the Margaret Thatcher one because you know, as you say, there's this East Anglian nonconformist. Um, Philo-Semite. We, we forget uh, Cromwell's role uh, in resettling Jews in England again. Not that he did this for humanitarian purposes. He did it so that uh, the Jews would convert to um, Protestantism, <laughs> um, Christianity, in the most perfect of all Christian polities. But uh, decisive in war, certainly. Um, problem with the Irish, that's certainly there as well. Um, there are all kinds of parallels. Now, what's being quite facetious, but I think that the most interesting parallel of all and we talked earlier about the Anglicisation of uh, both Scotland and Ireland that was the plan of this. That I think in the end, even the English people disappointed Cromwell. He described them, and I love this Cromwellian phrase, as under circumcision but raw. In other words, <laughs> they were on a kind of path to a a holiness, a perfection, but they weren't there yet. And indeed, they were a long way off. And I think there was that kind of element with Thatcher. There's a wonderful phrase. I can't remember who did it. I don't know whether it was Vernon Bogdan or, or someone else who said that um, Margaret Thatcher wanted to create a country in the image of her father, the Puritan Alderman Roberts, and created one in the image of her son. And there's a kind of parallel with Cromwell. 
Because who ultimately follows him? For a brief while, it's his son, but in the end, it's Charles II. And there's this kind of inability to really read the desires of the English people. So the English people, they'd let down Cromwell, they'd let down God, but worst of all, they'd let down themselves. So they let down me <laughs> and they let down Dominic. <laughs> On that note, we're going to, uh, to to bid you adieu, to thank Paul. Um, he was lamenting um, uh, the fact that people don't know much about Cromwell or what they know about him is, is largely mythic. Um, to get around that problem, I do recommend buying his wonderful book, Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate. Thanks ever so much. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 